Justin. I'm Jake. I'm Julian. I'm Jamie. I'm Mita. And I'm Kale. And this this is is Comics Verse. Welcome back to another Comics First podcast. I'm your host, Comics First CEO, Justin Alba. I am joined by my amazing co-host, Comics First managing editor, Ms. Jamie Rice. How are you, Jamie? I am amazing. How are you, Justin? I am as amazing as you are, times infinity. That's really amazing. Right. I couldn't be more amazing. Do you want to know why I'm so amazed? Why? Because we're talking about Alison Bechdel's fun home. That is so True. That is so true. Anyway, I kind of spoiled the spoiler alert that we're gathered here today today to talk about one of the premier comic books of all time, a graphic novel by Alison Bechdel, Fun Home. And Jamie, you are going to give us some more information about Fun Home. I am going to do that. So for those of you who are not familiar with Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, it is a memoir graphic novel about her childhood in a small town in Pennsylvania in a house that happened to be a funeral home, i.e. Fun Home. She had what we'll say is a challenging and complex relationship with her father. So Fun Home chronicles both her relationship with him as well as a is kind of a Bill Zun Roman or a coming of age story about her own sexual identity. And you probably know the name Bechdel from the Bechdel test, which she is named for. And the Bechdel test, of course, says that, which is out of her comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For, has about three rules. And it says that a movie has to have at least two women in it who talk to each other about some that is not a man, which is, of course, extremely popular and extremely famous on the internet as well as in the world. Justin, would you like to introduce our website as well as our fellow Comics First contributors to this lovely podcast? I want to introduce them so bad. I can't even contain the excitement the introduction that's about to ensue. No, seriously. But um, of course, yeah, I, I don't know. Jamie, you should do the whole internet thing of where you can find us on the internet. You're probably better at it than I am. Jamie. Do you want me to do it? Yeah. Where, do you, where can you find us on the internet, Jamie? Um, well, you can find us at comicsverse.com, um, where you can subscribe to our articles and our videos and our we, podcast. We and should of point out that you maybe only listen to the podcast. Oh, no, I was saying we should point out that an internet connection is required in order to gain access to the World Wide Web. That is so true. If you are if you are on a computer and you want to access us, internet is going to be vital. That is that is step one. So you should acquire that via Ethernet, the the Wi-Fi or the Wi-Fi, as the cool kids call it. Mm-hmm. You should find it. You can also, of course, find us on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash comicsverse TV or on Twitter at comicsverse. And then we are also on Tumblr and Facebook. So we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash comicsverse as well as comicsverse.tumblr.com. Awesome. Um, so I think that is all of our major media outlets. That is, although we are on like Pinterest and like every other thing too, but what can you do? Yeah, you'll find us. Just Google us. Anyway. Just Google um, Comics Verse and totally. you'll be very happy to have found us. Absolutely. Anyway, so believe it or not, some people wrote in and they were asking about the website and some people think we're just a podcast, so we aren't just a podcast. Well, that's awesome because... You know, they think our podcast is good enough that we're just a podcast. But sadly, we're so insecure that we need to supplement our material by like a website and videos and stuff. And again, you can find those on comicsverse.com. And, you know, just like the podcast, we analyze single issues, uh, story arcs. We have character studies in very much the same way as we do here. Jamie herself is the managing editor of the website and has written many things and so have many of my guests, which I'm about to talk about. So uh, speaking of comicsverse.com, it's time to talk about the people who work so hard to make it happen. And, um, 
one of them has just gone to the bathroom, but he will be returning. But first up is Comics First Editor, video personality and graphic novel enthusiast. And he is also a third year Columbia University law student. And quite a good rapper if I do say so myself and that singing voice is uh it's just it's hypnotic I, I when Jake was singing I felt like like the guy in the Little Mermaid and that you were the Little Mermaid mm-hmm. yeah that's not the first time I've gotten that. I, I, I believe it so yeah how are you doing Jake well how are you oh I'm so excited I can't even contain it but uh yeah you look like it thank you thank you so much and so our next person, it's his first time on the podcast. He has a graduate degree in comics from the University of Dundee in Scotland. And my first question was, is this where Crocodile Dundee is from? But I, I don't think that's true because he's Australian. But either way, comics first writer and video personality, Kale Ward is here. I am Kale Ward. I, so I'm going to say something first. I'm going to say two things, actually. Jake's rapping ability is somewhere between Fergie and Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also, good for some, anyone who doesn't understand those references somewhere that's amazing there. uh but also i literally just made the fun home funeral home connection i don't know how many times i've read this book uh, <laughs> and i just made that so education all around that's awesome <laughs> that you're uh that you're uh, appearing as an expert panelist on a podcast on fun <laughs> home and you just made that connection i'm sure um miss begdell herself will be so proud to hear that i am that goes to show my level of expertness yeah no um <laughs> my uh my hope for america's youth just left the room left the building thank you kale Thank you. Thank you. In fact, I just want to quit this whole thing. No, I'm just kidding. It's perfect, um, too, because his name's Kale. So he's so trendy. You're so trendy. You're like you're like a green seaweed that so we all just want to trendy. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously. Anyway, how, how do you feel about being on your first podcast? Because it wasn't long ago. Jamie and Jake were on their first podcast. Electric. Oh, man. I believe it. I believe it. Awesome. That's just a perfect word. But, you know, so we're supposed to have this intellectual discussion about Fun Home. And how could we have an intellectual discussion without the most intellectual person I know, who is Columbia University graduate and playwright and director, Julian Hawthorne. Julian Martin Hawthorne. Thank you for the full the full thing. It's, it's, it's not the same. And it's true. I went to, I went to university. It's, this is true. And he majored in American studies. So he is American studies. So he is a, an expert in everything American. For example, he retraced the trail of tears when he went on. The- why didn't you come visit me in Oklahoma when you yeah. did that? Yeah. Julian, why didn't you? Thank what you. What the heck? I was kind of busy with the whole trail of tears thing. Right. Yeah. I know you're an academic. I, heard, I understand. I heard he wrote his dissertation on apple pie. Oh shit. It's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> anyway, that was a beautiful discussion. But uh, but joining us for the first time, uh, another Comics First intern, also a playwright. And I still can't get over this, Mirai, but you have a 3.9 at Stanford University. That's bananas. Can it's you, amazing. Yeah. I mean, what <laughs> do you do? You, do you sleep? Like, are you like Colossus <laughs> in metal form? Um, that's the eternal question, yeah, right? Like, sleep, you, you know, eat. that diagram with the triangles of like social life, academics, sleep or something like that. And you Absolutely. can only have two at once. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think my triangle looks a little bit more like an octagon. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! But um, life is good. Life is busy. <laughs> awesome. And what's your play about that's coming out soon? 
So um, we're actually doing a musical. I'm producing it. Awesome. It's uh, Into the Woods. Oh, so yeah. okay, uh, cool. Stephen oh, Sondheim lovely. musical. Yeah, yeah. You may have heard of it. That's a great point. <laughs> it was a recent awesome. major motion picture, so I oh. hope you heard of it. What's it like? Featuring the beautiful Meryl Streep. I was we say, do not yes. have Meryl Streep, but oh. we have oh. other lovely people. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. So you guys, of course, we should naturally dig into uh, to Fun Home here. And I wish that I had like a really uh, like fun segue to like get us into it. But like just talking about Fun Home is like such a depressing thing, right? But still a depressingly beautiful thing. And so what is it about this? About What is it about Fun Home that makes it considered such a masterpiece in the academic comic book community and the comic book community in general? What makes it special? Oh, Jamie. Yeah, um, I would be honored to jump in because I think I've been thinking about this a lot because I got to read this for the second ish time for the podcast. And I think that it could be a few things. But I think one of the major things is that I mentioned in the intro that it's kind of like a coming of age story told. It's like told in parallel with the story that she has put together about her own experience and from history of her father. And I feel like that not like not only is that genre like rife for great lit, but I do think that there's something that's inherently like relatable about anybody who's telling their own story looking back from a distance. I feel like there is something about that that regardless of how different it is from yours, you understand what it's like to look back on your childhood or your life and think about those formative years, especially when she goes into like the second part that I got to, I read today for fun called Are You My Mother? It's very much like kind of when you go into that formative aspect of your life, it really illuminates things. And I think that at the end of the day, everyone had someone that formed them back in the day. So I think that's part of it. And also, obviously, that that genre always, it's like Catcher in the Rye, kind of like those kind of books are always the books that people are picking. So Jamie, just a follow up for you. Uh, why Fun Home and not let's say blankets. I think fun home, especially after doing a podcast on blankets, which everyone should listen to. I think blankets when I first read it was really formative for me because I went to a Catholic school and I was young. I was in high school, early high school, so like sophomore, freshman. And I think that for me, that like felt really like a personal connection. And then when I revisited it, I still loved it, but it wasn't quite, it was too specific. And in, a, in an odd way, um, in the sense that it was almost too connected to the Catholic church. And so it felt sometimes like too much of a commentary. Whereas even though Fun Home is definitely more specific about Alison Bechdel's life, it's like those little details, kind of like the devils and the details about her own personal life, where you kind of were like, I had, you can think of your own really small, minute details that you think of and all the time that transformed you or like your own parental situations. So I think it's like that focus on the family aspect that I think that gets it as opposed to the blankets, which blankets is amazing, but it does focus. It's almost, it can fall into preaching, ironically enough, in a way that I usually connect with, but I do see it now as something that distances me from the full narrative, I think. Cool. Uh, Kale, so you said you studied this uh, while getting your graduate degree in comics, right? They made you read Fun Home a couple times? Yeah, yeah. We studied this in in school and we talked a lot about the use of color, uh, specifically the color blue that she uses. I'm looking at a page right now and it's, it, it, it seems to sort of represent like the character that is her father, sort of this figure that, that definitely is there when you look at it on the page, but also is somehow passive. Like you, you, you see it, but it doesn't bother your eyes. It doesn't, it doesn't affect the viewing at all. So how do you think that contributes to making it such a like widely studied graphic novel? I don't have an answer for that. It's it's just a very unique. Uh, so the uniqueness of the way she uses color makes it 
artistically groundbreaking. Yeah. Okay, and, cool. Well, and maybe maybe not necessarily even groundbreaking, but uh, it it is very unique in right, that cool. it it runs through the whole story. And awesome, Julian. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't read Blankets, so I can't speak to why Fun Home is spoken about. I guess spoken about in academic circles in a way that Blankets is not. But at least for me, the way. Are you, like if we're speaking to the question of why it's spoken in academic circles as opposed to other graphic novels, and why it's just so special to to comic enthusiasts and in academic circles, right? Well, I mean, I I loved it, and this is the first time I read it, and I thought it was really really beautiful. And I thought one of the reasons I thought it was really really beautiful is because of the way it spoke. It it spoke really really profoundly about memory in a way that I felt no other genre but like graphic a graphic novel could do. And like it's always it, it references stuff like Proust and The Great Gatsby. And like in like various mythologies in which obviously like it's drawing on and it's uh, it, it it's making like really interesting use of but the way that like she's processing the story and processing her father as she's writing it and the way the interplay between like the text and the images work and how they contradict each other sometimes and how they're working on like different like tempos how like sometimes like the text will be on a totally different tract and a totally different wavelength than the image but they'll be informing each other I. It's it's written in a way that I feel like a text without image might not be. And I thought it was gorgeous the way she did it. Awesome. Jake, do you want to go on the Mirai? Sure. I guess, um, I mean, first of all, frankly, the first time that I read this comic, I read it for a class at the University of Chicago. And uh, by the time that I read it, it was already, you know, it had been Time Magazine's book of the year. It was on all kinds of best book lists. Frankly, I was a little bit cynical about that. There's a lot of conversation now about how the way that people consume information is changing, and it's more focused on images than text. And uh, when I hear that, I'm skeptical. To me, when I when I hear it, my response is that that means that people are getting lazy. So. I sort of felt like I was concerned that this comic was popular because, yes, it is very well executed, but uh, it was sort of a trend as if people wanted to start reading comic books seriously because they're picture books. So that's what I felt going into the uh, to my first reading. And uh, I, I actually retained that a little bit coming into the second reading for the podcast today. And um Having gone through it a second time, uh, my opinion has totally changed. First of all, I think uh, Fun Home would be an excellent memoir, regardless of the medium. Alison Bechtel's analysis of the events of her life and her literary analysis and the way that she weaves things together and discusses difficult ideas is it's exceptional. I mean... I think if you saw that in a in a text-based memoir, it would be a really impressive work in itself. On top of that, she's a fantastic artist. I think technically the art is uh, tremendous. Kale talked a little bit about the spot color. I think its subtlety works really well with the subject matter. And then in addition to that, like Julian was saying, she's able to make the text and the image uh, work well together in a way that carries it from not just being an excellent memoir, regardless of the medium, but making it an exceptional comic memoir. And I think uh, we should also talk some more about how comics can work really well with uh, nonfiction pieces like this. But maybe we can get to that a yeah, absolutely. Bit in the podcast. Absolutely. Mira, how about you? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things, well, I first I first read Fun Home in a class as well. Um, seems to be a popular choice for several reasons, I think. It was for a non-specifically uh, graphic novel class. It was a class on narrative and narrative theory. Mm -hmm. I thought made this book a really interesting choice. What really strikes me about it is the way that it ties time together, like the experience of time. Like 
you don't see a lot of, I guess you, you do see like some amount of uh, graphic novels that the entire narrative is focused in like this internal voice. Uh, it's like in a box above. There's not a whole lot of dialogue. It feels very quiet. It feels very meditative. Experience of time feel very fluid. She's like constantly making these jumps between scenes that would otherwise seem really erratic. But like with this method, this like style of narrative that's very unique to her. It makes it all feel like a collage of photos, like much like the collage of photos that she finds in like the past of like her father. Like there are so many symbols here that she ties together that like ring true both in her own narrative style and like have their parallels within the text itself. The going back to the photos, the the fact that she's just fixated on this relationship between her and her father that is like ornamented by these like embellishments that he's made to her house. Like she, one of her lines is that. Uh, my parents are most real to me in fictional terms is something she says in the text. And um, it's it's odd. It's almost like a meta commentary on herself uh, writing this memoir that like the way that she steps back and realizes her her childhood is through this this graphic novel, like fun home itself. And it, it's just an interesting play between artist and art I think that Fun Home provides like a way that she is like you really feel her Alison Bechtel interacting with the story itself and I think that is that provides a very powerful draw to people who read it whether they be just picking it off a shelf in the bookstore or picking it up in academia. Mira, do you think that this is a work of feminism? Do you think that this would be a book that would be appropriate to read in some sort of uh, feminist college course? Um, I, I mean, by the nature of the text, it would, the obvious answer would be yes. But like at an even deeper level, I think that Fun Home provides this, like a chance for Alison Bechdel to claim her own story. I think that's, that's a large part of what makes, what, like what empowers artists and what creates the power in art, like who tells a story, like how you can go back and experience like things that were constructed for you in the past and to deconstruct it for yourself through the art. Um, and I think that her constant circular movement through her childhood and like through her experiences and like just digesting them is her way of claiming her childhood and her own identity as her own. Jamie, what about you? Do you consider this to be a work of feminism? Yeah, I would definitely agree, especially with a lot of what Mirai said. And I think I think it's interesting because it's kind of in the way it's done is a work of feminism, like Mirai was saying, kind of that reclaiming of your own story aspect. But I think there's also, especially with even more, there's like a lot of it's interesting because it's a work of feminism in the way it's done, but it's also meditative on concepts of feminism, kind of with like the text that she pulls. Even like when I think about um, for my like final project when I was for undergraduate, we had to take like an old text and apply it to a new text. So for mine, I did how season six of Buffy was a version of the Odyssey. And so like in sense that that's and that was a feminist critique because I was saying that this modern thing has reclaimed a narrative that's typically ascribed to like the to the patriarchy to the white man. And I feel like she does ironically enough in her like nonfiction piece she takes a lot of old fiction obviously she's talking about Ulysses it is like the Odyssey for example and a lot of other things and she takes those and applies them to her life. So I feel like that's also of course a work of feminism and then I think there's also a lot of great feminist like writers or concepts that she just drops in all the time. So it's like in addition to being a work of feminism on its own, it's also kind of meditative on feminism and especially like LGBTQIA 
issues at the same time. So I think that automatically, like, in addition to how it's told, puts it even, makes it even better because it's more in conversation with those issues. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I think I should say that season six of Buffy was really amazing for those of you that have not seen it. And second (laughs) of all- You should definitely love it. Absolutely. And, and, And you guys bring up this interesting point because there's a moment where she tries to, where she sends a letter to her parents and comes out to them. And the mother sort of responds by saying, your father has had affairs with men, has had affairs with boys. And it's almost like, you know, she's not allowed to claim her moment and, and to come into her own. Like, you know, um, mm-hmm. their influence mm-hmm. is still over her. And we see that that sort of struggle with her. So I wanted to open up the question to you guys if you thought it was a work of feminism and, you know, inclusive of the, the things that we've just talked about. Oh, I didn't hear what you said. So the men have nothing. Oh, the men have nothing to say. Okay, cool. <laughs> awesome. So we can move on. Um, so, it, so since the men have nothing to say, that means it is a work of feminism. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I have something to say. I just, okay. Well, okay. Well, no, I, I, I do have something. I, I do. Have to say, I swear. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, yeah. Everything. I, 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 I really do actually agree with everything that's been said. It, it's, I'm too loud. I do, I do agree with everything that's been said, especially obviously about the reclaiming the story part. And this is like, this is some bullshit because I'm actually really not commenting. I'm going to ask another question. Um, I And I really know what to make of this, but I think it's really interesting. Sorry. I think it's really interesting the way that like this narrative of reclaiming one's own story, also within the context ironically enough, of her father's story. And like, I think she says at one point, like the horrible like feeling of being made to feel like comic relief to her yes. father's primary narrative. And I was, and I, I don't really have an answer to this, but I think that's really interesting when you think about the way that she also uses literature to come to terms with her own story and the way that she uses like Joyce and Proust and Camus and Colette to, to think about her own life and how I think that she ends up saying that that's a really imperfect way of thinking about like your own narrative, like thinking about it as like thinking about it in this like weird triangle in which like you like and this book are talking about like a third party, which is also you. And so it's it is a work of feminism, like 100 percent. I think that's true. But it's also like I think a really fascinating commentary on like what it means to reclaim one's own story and how that means also like oddly enough, like some kind of like acting as like a third party to your story, which is what she's doing. Oddly enough, she's like, she's making herself into a third party, both through herself and through like all these different works of literature. I, I don't know what, I don't know what that means, but I think it's really interesting. No, I think that's a great point to bring up. Here, uh, can I, I want to, can I run off that point for absolutely. a second? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, because I think that what you were saying about how she uses all those other, obviously, authors and narratives, I have to say that now that, like you said, that I made me think about certain revelations in the comic. And I feel like, especially after like having read the Odyssey, for example, when she has that kind of end chapter and it focuses in on that story and their connection, whatever, I think that one of my favorite scenes and one of my most tragic scenes in that book is whenever she's like when we they drove to the movies together and she was like I'm gonna try and talk to him about it and then they basically have a moment where her father like admits to him all of these or admits to her all of these like kind of dalliances with Ben and it's like tragic because like he says something where he's like when I was young I wanted to dress up like girls and she was like I was the same way about boys and then it's like it's like they don't really catch it they don't really connect and I feel like it's weird because that's a great scene on its own but then when you think about it in context of like fathers and sons or even like parents and children with the odyssey I feel like that elevates it which is, I think, maybe also one of the other reasons coming back to you back to the first question of why people think this is like a great book or great lit because I think that like when you add stuff like that, it just impacts the story even more. And then all of a sudden you're like, it's even more um, meaningful. I would say that page of them in the car together, which is the one I think that you're talking about where, you know, they're, the father 
and her are essentially discussing being gay. Mm-hmm. That was one of the uh, pages that we had a... Um, oh, there it is. Actually, it's actually two pages and Jake is holding it up right now. It's We actually had a close reading of those two pages because the professor found them, uh, found them so fascinating when I was taking a comic book class as well. So it's funny that, you know, uh, like you were saying, Mirai, that this is this class, this uh, comic has been read in so many comic book classes and so many other classes um, that involve literature. Julian, did you want to say something? Yeah, no, I was just going to talk because I, I love those pages as well. And I think like it's it's like a perfect example of comics doing something that's very specific to this medium because you look at every single panel and nothing changes. It's literally the same image printed over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And actually very little is said. Like they actually like none of them actually really like comes out. I mean, there's never the word that's like said, which is like I'm gay. Instead, like it's very like tangentially alluded to. And it's it, it is perfect because like they never like directly allude to it. Instead, it's just tangentially alluded through through all of these like totally indirect like third party ways. But nevertheless, like you see, like nothing is changing, but at the same time, like everything is changing. And that's something that I think like comics very specifically can do. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a really good point and something we're going to talk about a little bit later is that while she's sort of having this meditation on her relationship with her father and her childhood, she never puts her father in a box, right? She never actually says he's a child molester. I don't think she comes out and says that he's homosexual. She just sort of says that these are the actions that he does and and, and as she recalls them. And I think that's an interesting point. Kale, is there a difference between creating a comic from the perspective of a memoir versus a, a fiction comic? Yes. Well, well I mean, when you create a you know a fiction comic, you're you're pulling things that you're creating, um, right. as opposed to a memoir, which which you know is obviously things that have happened. I guess the the there is a similarity in that in a memoir, it's sort of your perspective on the things that ha- have happened, uh, which which is uh, which is sort of uh, similar to the fiction in that it it uh, could be true and then it might not be true at all. I'm I'm looking at that at that uh, that page we were just talking about the right. two you know the the the, pa- the pages at the the movie theater specifically and one of the captions or the caption I guess on uh, on that page is uh, like he was a, a splendid startled deer and obviously that's not true but that's how she saw it and she didn't want to you know scare this away and it uh, by by giving us that insight into how she sees it that also helps us understand what's what's going on. Uh, at the same time. Do you think that is this being a memoir affected your emotional reaction to the story? If if this was if this was a fiction story, would you have reacted differently emotionally? It wouldn't have felt as genuine, obviously. Okay. Uh because the the memoir side of it uh, it puts you in sort of Allison's place as opposed to reading it from uh, I mean you're reading it from the outside, but if it were fiction, you would be it would be like there was like a real barrier, whereas with the memoir, she's giving you the the thoughts that she's you know thinking and 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 her feelings. So it's as if you are her reading it at the same time. Awesome, uh, Mirai, how about you? Yeah, I think there's a lot more power to what is given on the page like what is given to you as a reader when it's a memoir versus when it's a piece of fiction as well. Because when you have a piece of fiction, then like the creative freedom comes from the ability to create worlds and to create um, new things from a, from a universe of choices. Um, and while there is still a universe of artistic choice in memoirs, there is also a process of selection, I think, in like uh, in what memories you create, like what details, like when she's exa- she's discussing like 
the streets of New York, I think. Um, and she points out specifically the smell of urine, the, you know, the shit on the streets. It's like right. she's painting this picture of this vivid around her that she thought would be necessary and important to like the emotions of the reader. And um, I think that like the fact that what like that she she chose those specific memories makes those scenes so much more important and like those scenes that she chooses to elongate from her memory like the scene in the car to the movie theater where there are full blocks uh, there are full frames that are just blanks and she just leaves it up to the the reader to imagine like how long it was and how much like a whole chunk is left in her memory of this moment it, it makes the like the implications of what is on the page so much more powerful I think Absolutely. Uh, Jamie, what about you? What do you think? I would say I think, yes, um, that making it a memoir as opposed to fiction does impact the reader more. And I think it's um, interesting because Justin, I was talking to you about this before the podcast and in the book that kind of she wrote after this about her mother, she says that her mom at one point told her, I think that you should have made it fiction instead of a memoir. And she says, no, because I wanted to tell the truth about what happens. And I think that's a very interesting kind of perspective on it because I think that it's true even in our kind of more postmodern society that if somebody tells us it's true we at least think well this is true to them like we know that when they look back on that this is exactly how they remember it and I think that Bechdel does a great job in her memoir of course kind of qualifying it especially in kind of her chapter that focused more on her OCD and her issue with adding the word I think to everything is that like she realizes that this is how she perceives her childhood but it could be colored by any other thing that she just kind of learned as she she went along in her life. And I think that the amazing thing about it is that even though it's a memoir that she obviously is all the time telling you it's colored by her perspective, those like when she chooses to write out a full scene, it just feels very real. And I think that's because at the end of the day, I know that this is exactly how she remembers it. And this is exactly how it probably close to happened. Um, so unless I got like 12 other versions of this via her other family members, I would believe her version at the end of the day and i think that that's why i think that that is a, it was a good choice for her not to try and change the names make it fiction because i think that like regardless of how aware you are of the fact that things are perspective based i think that it still hits you as like this is a real thing that happened and like a real family a real fail to connect a real problem and i think that's why memoir is definitely like the way to go for this how about you guys I agree with a lot of what's been said. I think that making it nonfiction makes it different. I don't know if it inherently makes it more powerful. Just be, I do think, I think the difference is that as a reader, you need less convincing to buy into the world when it's nonfiction. There's like never this time which you're like, is like, can, can I like get on board with what's being said? You're automatically on board just because like, you're, you're told at the beginning, this is a true story. I think that like the really interesting thing in Fun Home with the fact that it's nonfiction is that automatically there's this added like added narrative, which I think like, and like people have said this before during this podcast, which is the narrative of Allison trying to tell the truth and Allison like figuring out her story as she goes along and the book itself being like this triumph of her telling the truth and her coming to terms with herself in a way that her father didn't. And like her coming to terms with herself is like this amazing narrative. And like, I, like there's like this amazing moment toward the end in which like she asked the question, like, what if Icarus 
Or, or what if like Daedalus hadn't like had like been better with the design of the wings? Right. And the implicit answer, it's so cool. It's obviously like, because she's talking about her dad, like what if like Daedalus had like, you know, known himself better? And the answer is obviously like, he would have written like the book that I did. Yeah. He would have like made this like amazing work of art out of his life that I did. And that's not there if it's a work of fiction, like the fic, like the narrative of her making it, which is like totally dramatic in and of itself, isn't there? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's really heartbreaking, a really heartbreaking point that you, uh, that you thought up. Jake, how about you? Anything to add? Yeah, all good points. I think for me, the book, if the book had been fiction, it would have looked much different. First of all, I've never read a work of fiction that uses literature like Fun Home does. Frankly, I haven't read many uh, works of nonfiction that uh, apply literary ideas at this level. I think her analysis throughout is one of the most impressive aspects of this book. Here, I think we can see another difference between this and something like Blankets, which is also a book that I really enjoyed. But uh, for me, that book could have been a work of fiction and probably have been just as effective and could have looked largely the same. Fun Home, on the other hand, I don't think could have looked anything like this if it had been written as a work of fiction. The way that she organizes her ideas and depicts images is so specific that it seems like it just had to be a work of nonfiction in order to work like this. And particularly, that also applies to the pages that we talked about just now. The way that she depicts the passage of time on those pages is indicative of I think a talent of hers throughout this and also Are You My Mother, which is how she organizes events in time. And it seems important that those events were real, that she experienced them, and that she's able to use different artistic techniques to show them on the page. All right. So what page was it, Jake, that you just found this uh, amazing? Uh, well, yeah, it seems like they're different between copies, but mine's 134. Awesome. Yeah. On 134 mm-hmm. and on the digital copy, it's actually the, the page right after the cover. And to me, I, I thought of them as portals. Jamie just saw them in like circles with silhouettes, I think is the term that you used. The technical um, term. <laughs> Exactly. But obviously, to me, it was it was showing that the, the family is like physically closer in the same house, but obviously not close emotionally. And I actually spent like a few minutes looking at that page. I thought it was uh, really telling and I thought it was beautifully drawn. So I was wondering if anybody else was struck by that. Julian, I see you nodding. You're not. You're, that's it. You were just struck by it. Yeah, I, w- I was struck by it. Okay. <laughs> Any, Kale or Jake? Yeah, it seems to me that this page is particularly represented throughout the book in the relationship of Allison with each of her parents individually. When you talk about the separation of characters, I think that definitely applies with the parents and for Allison. It's interesting here that every member of the family is is depicted. Uh, Both of her brothers don't show up nearly to the same extent that Allison and her parents do. But we do get similar images to the ones that we see in this. We see in other parts of the book, for example, her her brother building model airplanes, for example. But in terms of separation of characters, I think that's uh, it's an interesting point because the mother and father really are very distinct and uh, she seems to push them really far apart in various parts of the book. Does anybody else have anything to add about the separation aspect? I think it's, uh, I think it's really interesting that you call it separation even though that what i'm about to say has nothing to do with that whatsoever 
this is probably just a commentary on 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 Bechdel's attitude toward she and her father on some level, and I bet this is a theme somewhere in the book. But the couple of times I've read this, I've I've really noticed how she and her father look similar. Like and and that's obviously not just like a uh, an inherited thing, but like they're drawn very similarly. Like at some point, they they have this sort of sort of like downcast like both kind of studious and like almost uh look like they're like they're bored kind of with whatever's going on and they have this like deep kind of uh, frown like they're working on thinking about something or, or something uh we were talking about the the movie theater scene and you can really see it kind of almost devolve back into that look where their their shapes and like silhouettes are are paralleled yeah, actually, cool. it's interesting you bring up the uh, the similar depiction because I, I think that also applies to the mom for most of Fun Home. All the characters sort of have the same look on their face. Like you said, sort of like um, stern almost. I've seen, I've seen, it reminds me sort of uh, of Doonesbury, like, yeah. the, you know, the new the newspaper. It reminded strip. me of Walking Dead. It's also, <laughs> seriously, you, you really notice it if you compare Fun Home and Are You My Mother. The mother doesn't look like that in the second book. She's depicted, I thought at the beginning of the book, like sort of a, a sweet looking woman. And uh, that's just not how she's drawn in Fun Home. She is, she's clearly taxed by this relationship with her husband. And uh, that's, that's pretty much how Bechtold de- depicts her throughout the book. Mirai. To add on to that, the faces were definitely something that, that struck me about the characters in this book, how they're all very, very static and project themselves and their emotions. They almost very rarely does any of the characters have their mouth open, which I thought was like really strange, um, but like strange in the fact that I didn't notice it at first right. until I read it maybe the second time. And um, it really just brings about this like this silence that's like just compounded by the the grayish blue that the entire book is painted in and all these like very silhouette like like we're saying in this in this frame very silhouette-like characters and positions um, that just, like, are scattered throughout the book. Like, I I don't... It it just creates a mood, I guess, Uh, having the characters have these these half-open eyes and these closed mouths. I don't know. I haven't read Are You My Mother, but I don't know if she depicts the faces or the mouths in a similar way in that graphic novel, but it's almost universal throughout this one, even when they're talking. Does she, Jamie? I think that what's I think that I kind of what Mirai was saying about the mood with the lack of the movement. I feel like it also kind of is connected to the she has this really great thing that I think of as like she's kind of like an objective documentarian on her own life. And I feel like we all are in some senses when we try to look back on our past. And I feel like that is also a part of the way people are depicted because she unless it's probably an it's like an extreme emotion or an extreme example she can't really say that like anyone was having an overly extreme like emotional response in any moment because like that's hard it's hard enough to remember what happened let alone how people were so i feel like that in addition to the blue kind of adds to this melancholy of like trying to recapture all of these things that happened and they're so fleeting and so i think for me it was like with the like especially with like the visual style i always thought that it worked mostly to help emphasize how her and her father were kind of tragically connected but never connecting and i think that because as we were saying they kind of all have a similar look on their face it's kind of like everyone is connected but nobody's truly connecting um, like we all have kind of like a sim- we're all human we're all similar but we're never truly 
making that leap, making that emotional connection in some senses. So for me, it was always more, it was a combination of like her own art style, but also kind of a theme, I think. Well, in terms of bringing up that connection, which I'm, I'm glad you did, I was also um, kind of struck by the way touch was used in the comic, I think especially in regards to her and her father. Um, in the first scene, we see them together and, and he's using his feet to play with her. And she talks about one of that one of that time being one of the few times her father ever touched her. And then if you guys remember, she was feeling a lot of emotion towards him and she wanted to kiss him goodnight and tell him that she loved him. And all she felt comfortable doing was was kissing his hand and kissing his ring. So, or, or as if he was kissing his ring and she was like, she was saying it was as if her father was some sort of um, like countess or something, the way she was like kissing his hand. So did you guys have any responses to that? Or did you guys notice that as well? Mira? Actually, just a quick note. What's mm-hmm. interesting also is that Alison Bechtel doesn't show the kiss itself in the frame. Oh wow! It's just That's the before point. and after. Right. Um, I'm trying to find the page, but I remember, I remember seeing that, like that exact scene that you're talking about, and being struck by the fact that she couldn't even bring herself to draw it. <laughs> wow, that's a really good point. I, I, a point I didn't notice either. Yeah, she does. Uh, she does talk about how like embarrassed she was about it and the whole thing, and that the like she fled the room in in such embarrassment. Right. Yeah. This, sorry. Go ahead. Just uh, leaning towards the hand, and then fleeing yeah you're right what page is that on uh that's on page 19 i think i think there's like an obvious point to make but i think that like this frame is like really like indicative of the whole thing is this really interesting commentary on like the father figure within like the larger family structure and like how that's changing during the 60s like coming into now and like the whole thing is about like the artifice like of like of her whole family life, but particularly like her father's sexuality and like that being a part of like her father's position within like her little tribe, like which is her family. And like that slowly breaking down over the course of his life and that paralleling like the breakdown of like the whole patriarchal family structure of like the idea of like the father being like the count as like i think i i don't know who said it but like so Allison did, yeah 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 also yeah like of him like of uh of like her father being the count and i think that's so interesting because like that's the perfect like metaphor for it and it's such an interesting reaction like embarrassment to the whole thing that like her kissing her father's hand like he was like this patriarch and like her being embarrassed at how false the whole thing was like and that's such an interesting reaction i think and like that's so profound like a reaction to like kissing her father's hand in the way that like according to all this kind of mythology he's deserved to be kissed and just feeling like this sense of like total embarrassment and like having acknowledged like both that like yeah i guess he's the patriarch but also like the whole thing is just total artifice Absolutely. I, I, to me, it made me feel really sad. I felt as if mm-hmm. he was making her feel like she wasn't worthy to kiss him. And she refers to him. Uh, we just looked it up as as a, a bishop or elegant lady. It wasn't a yeah. countess or count. Like, but yeah, no, like yeah, totally. And like, well, like, you know, to like go up on what you're saying, like her. But I think it's like two things. I think that's what you're saying, like him, like making her feel like she's not worthy, but also her kind of knowing on some level that like well he's also like exactly like the same he's he's like me too right and like that like the old bears like no one's saying anything about it but like both kind of know i think it kind of goes back to what she says in the scene where they're in the car where she's like i didn't know who was the father like who was mentoring who through this scenario and that brings up an interesting point about the father and we talked about this a little bit before about how allison doesn't put her father in a box and and she doesn't really draw conclusions about him she just you know sort of reports what happens as Mm -hmm. she interprets it and, and lets us figure out the details and 
I guess, you know, I just wanted to go through everyone and I guess, well, Jake, we'll start with you. And what was your, what do you think about the father? You know, now that you've read it a few times and you take a step back, what are your, what are your thoughts about him? And does the fact that she doesn't put him in a box, do you think of him in a more, are you more sympathetic to him or, or less sympathetic to him from that fact? Or does it not really alter your opinion? More or less sympathetic because of how she doesn't specifically categorize him. Well, I think in general, the father is obviously a, a complex character. And anytime you're talking about a real person, the depiction in a book, regardless of how often they come up, and she's able to do things that print books couldn't do. She actually shows him. We see some of his emotions and that sort of thing. And he's one of the most prominent characters over the 230 or so pages of this book. But Regardless of that, I think that uh, she actually could have, I mean, she makes active choices about how she is going to depict the father. Toward the end, I think in the last couple of pages, she's talking about the last time that she spent with him. And there is one panel where she's playing the piano with him and they're both smiling. And I couldn't remember any other parts of the book where that happens. In the vast majority of scenes where he shows up, he's either just serious or actually angry about something. It shows him hitting the kids, for example. He gets bothered by lots of different things. So she's obviously making active choices about how she wants to depict him and which scenes she's going to show. It seems to me that that last part where they're really enjoying each other's company indicates that the relationship was even more complex than we see in the book. So, I mean, he's obviously, I mean, we can sort of make these judgments from a literary perspective or from an outsider's perspective about the father. I mean, he's clearly a child molester. I mean, he's molested children, had sex with underage children, Roy being one. The mother sort of alludes to uh, many other relationships. He's obviously cheated on the mother. He physically and emotionally abuses his children. And I guess I'm asking the same question in a different way, but how is it that he evokes sympathy given those things? Well, I think not to like put too fine a point on it, like that's the book. And mm -hmm. I think, no, like you're right. And like everything you're saying is right. He's like under like every kind of like moral standard that like people subscribe. He's not like quote unquote a good man. But I think like the whole book is about, and I, that, this is like why I loved it so much. Cause it's like, I feel like one of the many things it's about is how like the people who hurt us, like give us like the greatest gifts. And like, that's like how he's like, he's in some ways like done irreparable damage to like who she is and like the way she thinks about people and like how like her ability to trust people but who she is is like entirely like predicated on who he is like like it's contrasted against whom he is like but she also but he like he gives her like her love of literature i feel like he gives her so much but he's giving it to her like while he's hurting her tremendously and i think that's I think that's really amazing. And I think that's really smart of her to like to talk about that in like such, yeah, like in, in the way that she does. Go, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you think that openness that she has about his character, is that what makes it such a special work? Is that part of it? Yeah, totally. Like her ability, like, I mean, so like what people like call honesty, I think like she shows like in like unrestrained amounts. Like she's not like, it's not cliche. And it's not like, I don't think that she's sympathetic toward him. Like, I think that she's brutal, actually, like about who he is and how he's like not. A, like, I mean, there's a point which like she says, like, is he a great father? And then she answers like, 
well, he stuck around. And then he said, well, then no, actually, no, he didn't stick around. He wasn't a good husband, but he also gave her this gift. And this gift is fun home. But the the end of the book is also very touching. And the last few pages are a sweet depiction of a father-daughter relationship. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I do think it's interesting. You put it in as terms as stark as you did, Justin, and then compare it to the overall depiction of the of her father. I think it, it is a humanizing portrait. And in the end, I don't I mean, for me, at least the the final chapter was was touching. Yeah. I wonder if we're supposed to find him sympathetic, like she doesn't necessarily see him that way. But I think I wonder if she crafted the narrative so that so that we would find him sympathetic. I feel like we're supposed to like. Question. I feel like we're sorry. Like I feel like we're supposed to like find him human. I don't think that we're supposed to sympathize with him. That's like, exactly I, what yeah. I was gonna say. And I think that I would also say that there's an aspect to it where it's kind of clear, and it is even more clear. And are you my mother? Where it's kind of like I'm writing about this to get to a place with myself emotionally where I can let it go. And, and yeah. move forward and kind of, like Julian was saying, like, take these things that have happened to me and take them with a grain of salt, but also realize at the end of the day, what did these things give me? Which I think is why the last chapter is touching. Like, it's kind of an optimist take on it because at the end, she's kind of like, overall, there were all these things. And especially like when they show that scene where, or she shows a scene where she is like, I wish I could say what I really wanted to say at the funeral. And she's like, well, I think that he was like, like, he was like, a fag that like killed himself and like he left us here and we don't know what's going on as opposed to like in the end she just really was like yeah it's a tragedy um so i feel like it kind of like shows her going through an emotional journey too which is why at the end you're so satisfied because you're you realize that she's kind of gone through the ringer with this scenario and tried to think of what does this mean for me especially like in consent and like we even talked about it a lot but like especially considering like, her sexuality and how like in a way they're kind of mirror stories but hers went differently and she even goes at one point like i wish i guess that he would have been more accepting of his sexuality but then I guess I wouldn't be here. So how, how am I supposed to deal with those two disparate facts at the same time? So I think at the end of the day, it is kind of like what Julian was saying. It is very human. And I feel like most people just can't help but relate to someone who feels so real to them. So off that, even though he is a three-dimensional person and, and Alison Bechdel does such an amazing job portraying him that way, you're right. If you were in her shoes, if, if he was your father, what would what of his behaviors would have bothered you the most and, and would have affected you the most negatively, do you think? Honestly, I think one of the one of the passages that Allison claims towards the beginning of the book about how her father treated the family like he treated the house was particularly hard hitting. Like the thought that somebody could see his own kids, his own wife as like decorative objects. Like um, there, there's that part where it's in a frame show, depicting the Christmas tree in the house and the, the two brothers sitting next to it. And he's like, and and um, Allison states that. She pro- she thought she felt as if uh, the kind of the way that her father thought of his children were just pieces completing the picture of family and the thought of having this this picture of family, this I- ideal that the father had um, and that being the only value that he felt in, in the family. Like she she doubted whether or not he enjoyed having a family or, or why he enjoyed having a family. I think that would hit the hardest. Like everything else is symptomatic to this to this core way that he approaches having a daughter and having kids and having a family, I think. How about everybody else? Did anybody else read this and was like, oh my gosh, if this happened to me, I would not be able to go on. I would not be able to, to deal with this. And I would not be able to maybe come to terms with it in uh, the healthy way that Alison Bechtel has. 
Was there something like that for, for anybody else? I mean, for me, it was if my mother called me and said, hey, your father's been molesting boys, I would be pretty freaked out. And that would take I'm not sure I would be able to um, I'm not sure I'd be able to get to the point where I, I would be as open minded as she w- she was in, in the sense that she wanted to look at him as a three dimensional human being, which is the word that we're all using. I, I think I would be too angry and, and I would feel too injured to be able to have, you know, the insight to look at him as a three dimensional person. Yeah, I that's a that's a good point. I do think that people have a an exceptional and frequently unexpected ability to approach difficult situations like that in a way that they wouldn't have predicted that they would. I guess I feel like you can put yourself you can imagine yourself in that situation and say that uh, certain things that the father did would be deal breakers for you. And that, but you say that from a perspective that doesn't have the same type of background that she and her family had. And so if you were actually in that situation, I think that your response very well might be different. People, I think, have certain expectations. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's easy to sit here and judge when you're not the person. Right. Well, faced with something like child molestation, if someone close to you did that, you can easily say now that you would be disgusted by that and wouldn't tolerate it. And then if you were actually faced with that situation, your response could very well be very different. Yeah, I mean, well, there, yeah, like I've, I have two th- answers to that question, actually. Um, one, to respond to what you said, I feel you. And that like if, if uh, I feel like if my, if like that came out about my family, I would also probably be distraught. But I think that the difference is, and I think like Jake talked about this already, that like I know you and you're like, ex- and you're exceptionally close to your father in like a way that's very beautiful. Alison Bechtel like already looked at her father as like a literary character. Right. Like, like, you know, so like when, like when he died, her reaction was like, this is absurd as opposed to like devastation. So I think that it would be quite reasonable for you to like be horrified at your if your father does something like that but like i i think that like she already had such a distance from her father that she was able to like analyze it we're not analyze it like she did the process not in a dispassionate way but in well maybe in like a somewhat uh, maybe in a somewhat dispassionate way i feel like but uh the answer to the question like what would piss me off the most i feel like i think that like the line in which uh she said like when she came out and she was and then like her mother told her like your father did this and she was like I was relegated to like comic relief in my father's story that would be what would piss me off the most the idea that like and it's like the way like that about her father like the way her father constantly like and I think this goes back to what was said before how her co- father constantly viewed their whole her whole family as like supporting characters in his own story this would infuriate me if like if i were growing up in the home like how he's constantly saying like i am gasper like we're the bundrens <laughs> from like as i lay dying like you imagine like your father saying like we are the bundrens from as i lay dying you would be so like no i mean you're not for one and two with the inability to cope with what's actually happening in any way that's directed all and making everyone out to be like, well, you guys are all characters in my story, just so you know. Like, this would be very upsetting to me. Right. It's like he's trying to impose his story on her. And then the yeah. second she tries to make it her story, he stops it and usurps that experience from her. Well, he didn't try to do that. That's true. Yeah. It was an effect. Uh, he made other decisions. That, that led to that. that. That led to that. Absolutely. Speaking of uh, death and dying... <laughs> What did everybody think of her 
and her siblings' reaction to her father dying. And while we're on the subject, yeah, and, uh, while we're on the subject, and uh, I also noticed the the repeat panel that she had when she was receiving the phone call from her mother about her father's death. I, I thought that was extremely powerful. And Mirai, you mentioned how she plays with time uh, a lot, and and. There is. It struck me as so real, and 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 as one of the great things that the comics medium can do is the placement of that panel in the timeline of the entire story was so real, and I thought something that I related to, and I thought it was just something really human. So, uh, would anyone like to talk about that, Mirai? Um, I, I so when you were mentioning the um, the scene where she learns about the the death of her father on the phone and how that is repeated. It also struck me how many times the image of her father crossing the highway was repeated several times and from several different angles. Yes. Um, like it was it's always the same image, but never exactly alike. And you could just tell that throughout the entire book, like even from the beginning, she's she's constantly like foreshadowing it, constantly referring back to it. And it's like each time the image becomes a little bit clearer as she pieces it together. Like at the very beginning, um, you have on page seven where he's not even carrying the bushel of, of grass when he gets hit by the truck, but he's holding this piece of the house, but it's the same exact kind of like position he's in. It's the same silhouette. And it's, and she's talking about like in that panel, his passion. And already she's thinking about this image that is, that is there in the back of her head of the death. And it's this image that is throughout the entire book becoming more present for her and more real for her and more physical until it just becomes explicitly, yes, this is the scene and like I accept it and am unnaturally um, like not like not exhibiting emotion towards it in the way that one would typically expect. Right. I'm so glad you brought up the the beginning of the book because I really wanted to talk about the image of her father. I forget what she was carrying, but it was a clear uh, a clear metaphor for Jesus carrying the cross and in, in the station. Yeah. Of the cross. And uh, you know, I, I just what you just said totally reminded me of it and how that could be. Um, yeah. What page? It's on page seven, actually, the same page you were discussing. Um, at least in this book, I wonder if it's the same page. Um, yeah, it's the same image. Yeah. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. And I think you know, it, it's such a multi determined image, and I, I think you just sort of made me look at it as a form of foreshadowing actually, which I hadn't looked at it before. I mean, obviously, it's so chock full of reading, but um, that was what I hadn't looked at. And also how big the, the piece of wood he's carrying is, the burden that he's carrying is is, is really interesting and, and, and humanizing, actually. So so I kind of added my two cents. And did you guys have anything to say about the uh, the other stuff we were talking about before, about the absurdity of death? Julian, you brought that up before. And, and oh, the absurdity her, of death. Yeah. And her and her <laughs> siblings' reactions. None. Well, I just wanted to take a second oh. and uh, just follow up on this one image. This image feels unique in the book because so much of her depiction is realistic. It's almost all of it is based in, uh, it looks like it could be photographic almost. And in right. this one image, it's definitely not like that. The house is all black. The father is... You know, it's obviously perspective, but the father is the size of the house. He's in this pose that, like you were saying, Justin reflects that meaning. And then it's accompanied by the text, libidinal, manic, martyred. This really feels like a, a very powerful image. It really is. Um, Travis actually talks in our promo about Grant Morrison saying comic panels being masterpieces. And I think that's a, an excellent example of one and one we should probably talk about mm -hmm. in the future. This is 
not a point on that panel in particular, but on all her panels, do you know anything about like the way that she constructed her individual panels? It's it's pretty amazing. Like apparently what she did was for and this is a, like she she spent 7 years on it to so make sense. For every single panel that she constructed, she photographed herself in that exact pose. Yes. And then not even like for her, for the other characters. For, for, for every single character. So for every single frame, every single character, like if there's a classroom huh? and she uh, has like all of the people like sitting at desks and stuff, every single one of those kids is like a picture of like was originally a picture of her sitting in that exact pose. And I think that speaks to like the masterpiece of it, and like the and like the metho- and like how methodical she is. Yeah, no, there's a wonderful video of her on YouTube uh, talking about how she created this, which I think is is super important. So I recommend it. Mirai, were you gonna say something? Yeah, she. I mean, she kind of references her her method when she has that huge two page spread of the picture of Roy, where um, it, like the rest of the style of all of her drawings is is very simplified, and um, I. Yeah, like not particularly detailed in terms of like gradients and such, but like this one picture is just unbelievably detailed. It's on uh, page 100 um, to 101. It's like smack around the middle of the book, this monolith. And it's like your talk, you're mentioning of... um, her method of taking photographs of people and then making that into the comics really reminded me of this page because it's like she's, it's a photo a drawing of a photo that's recognizing it as a photo, like the still in time. And like the rest of the the comic frames are also stills in time. But this is self-aware in that way. Yeah, I didn't realize that that was how she goes about uh, constructing her images. But one of the, after the first, after my first reading, two images really stuck with me. One was the one that we've discussed already, the father crossing the road with that uh, bushel over his shoulder. And the other was the very last image, which is Allison jumping off the diving board into her father's arms. And that one stuck with me particularly because that chapter is introduced with something similar to to this picture on uh, page 100, which is a photograph that presumably her mother took of her jumping off the diving board into her father's arms. That last image, though, is from her perspective. So I just loved how those two images work together. Yeah, totally. And like about like the methodology of her, like, you know, taking photographs of herself and then uh, it it's like another it's well, it's like another reference to like almost like how much I don't know how much we're just reading this because we obviously don't know how she constructs it, but how much like she doesn't trust herself and mm-hmm. like how and I and I will. Well, it's interesting, like because the whole thing is also about like her remembering and how much like how well she remembers and how much we're supposed to take what she says as fact and how much we're supposed to take what she says as, you know, all, like, I mean, like, how much we're supposed to take it as, like, the inevitable, like, you know, blurriness of autobiography in which, like, the contract is, like, you take some stuff as totally real and you take other stuff as reasonably, like, altered. And I think it's so interesting that, like, she, I don't know what it means again, like, she didn't trust herself enough as far as like her memory is concerned to like reconstruct frames in that like she had to like physically act each one out. Yeah. And I was going to say kind of like going off of that, 
I think that leads really well into one of the questions I came up with on the second reading of this was that I was thinking about how like she kind of I called it like meta inserts herself into the narrative because it's not like she's just you know you read a lot of memoirs or biographies where somebody's like I they're in the story obviously because it's their story but she also kind of like references that like she it's like that she's writing her own story at the same time and I think it's interesting because I wondered um like whether or not that positively or negatively Infects kind or affects her uh, reliability and kind of like whether or not that was important. So I was just wondering if anyone else had any thoughts on that because that was definitely something that really like sparked in my brain this time when I was reading it. Well, I think that also kind of goes back to like the other point we were talking about about like the multiple frames thing. It's almost like every single time she shows another frame, she's like going back and like saying like, "Did I remember that right?" Like, did I remember that right? And like, even the way she introduced the whole thing is like, and the way she introduced her father's suicide, which is like, this is what was said. This is what I believe. However, like what I believe is like not necessarily the way it is, even though I'm pretty sure it was the way it is. And then we go back to that scene like over and over and over and over and over again. And it's kind of like reflected reflected throughout the whole thing, how like you'll see like a frame shown 50 times and each time there's a different like caption above it or there's different like, you know, word bubble. No, I think that's a that's a great point to me. The reliability wasn't so much an issue because in something like this. All that really mattered to me was that it was an honest portrayal. So she could have been totally wrong about certain things. I do think that the creator inserting herself is an interesting issue in nonfiction uh, comics and also nonfiction work in general. I mean, there are a lot of nonfiction comics that are fantastic. And I think a, a common issue is just the one that you've brought up, Jamie, which is the role that the creator has in portraying whatever information is at the center of the story. An example is like Joe Sacco is a great uh, comics journalist. And so the issue there is how much does his role as an illustrator affect the uh, the way that he is reporting information? Does that make it less reliable or maybe it adds some type of perspective that more objective journalism would lack? Some of the same issues, I think, come up here. Like if she had a photo album that uh, she had just added captions to, I'm not sure it would be as powerful as the book that we're reading now. Yeah. And just like to bounce off that, it's also like going back to like the first question was like, why is this remembered? It's like so much in the tradition of like, you know, like like shit like Proust and like and Fitzgerald in which like the narrator in which like you're so hyper aware of the fact that the narrator is remembering things like the way he or she wants things to be remembered and that and it and always inevitably concerns like a figure like whom one is mourning for. And I think like it's an interesting commentary about like the whole mourning process, how like she is like reconstructing her father in a way to like keep her father alive. But in some sense, like in the way that like she she feels like she needs to remember him, which is inevitably not everything. Um, and just like going off of that, I'm going to run into like my second question because I think it does relate to perception because I think the other thing, we haven't really talked about it at all. So I think it's probably a good thing to delve into. But I think um, it's pretty clear because of the way the story is told that her um, meditation on her own sexuality is definitely like kind of informed by the story of her father. And so I was kind of wondering if I feel like it to me, it seems in some ways that her own like coming out process kind of like I was just wondering if you guys thought that informed the way she thought about her own father's sexuality 
because they get so intertwined. And I feel like I wonder whether or not she probably thought of him with a different perspective than, for example, like if she definitely had like not come out as gay or if she had not kind of had this meditation on her own place in like her sexual spectrum. Well, that's one of the sort of sad parts about what wound up happening. The fact that that scene that we've talked about so much ends without a conclusion. And she doesn't really know what his experience or his perspective was on his own sexuality. So she has to sort of uh, impute her own experience onto uh, her father's experience. Yeah, I had a I had a similar thought while we were um, talking about the the point of view. And one thing uh, when we were talking about uh, whether or not we thought he was a sympathetic character, I um the there's a quote I think I think I read it in a Spider Man comic somewhere uh, that the bad guy is always the good guy in his story. And while I don't obviously think that the the father is like the bad guy, you know, I definitely wonder what his story is. You know, I mean, I'm sure uh, the times, you know, the, the, the thoughts and the, the stigmatisms of, of the time had a lot to do with how he came out and if he came out and, and all that. But I, I wonder how that informs his relationship with, with Allison and, and the rest of his kids, frankly. Yeah, like on on off of uh, what everyone else has said, going off of like the, the narrative of her coming out, I think that. I mean, obviously, like, that's totally central, both to, like, the whole narrative and to the way the book has been received and, like, the way it's been subsequently received as, like, a musical and stuff that, like, it's it's the story and part of her coming to terms with herself. I think it's, like, I have, like, I, like, yeah, it's, like, it's another beautiful part of the story that, like, the relationship between her and her father totally speaks to the fact that, like, her father, in a way, like, her father's denial of his own sexuality, like, his total observance and desire of normalcy, like, which is, like, goes hand-in-hand with, like, everything, like, this totally antiquated version of, like, what normal is, like, his selection of these, like, weird antiques to put around his house and to, like, adorn the roof of his home and the way he selects, he, he selects family, which was, like, said earlier, which is, like, like, furniture, and the way that he needed normalcy in many ways like allows Alison Bechdel to like turn away from that and she says that beginning that like everything he was I made such an effort to like turn away from like he was saying like she was like to his like Athenian I was Spartan to his like aesthetic sense I was um, like utilitarian and it and, and it speaks to, like a, the larger narrative of like what it means to be like to be gay or bisexual or whatever sexual whatever sexual orientation you ascribe to in America that like it was his suffering that allowed her to to do what she needed to do sexually and and to be the person that she was because he uh, like whether or not he knew it or not selected this kind of life for himself. Yeah. So I just going off of that, uh, what really struck me about the way that the two. Uh, that Allison and her father approached their own relationships to their sexuality. Like, Allison is definitely an evolution of his approach. Like, when she tells her father that, like, you know, she's a lesbian, his response is, at least you're human. And, like, it just seeks to be on so many levels this, like, feeling of shame that he has towards it. Like, the fact that he is doing this to his own, like, whatever this is, um, to his own family. The fact that, like, the the mother when she um is talking to defend his home like the father's homosexuality by saying that he he was molested as a child like there's this this um 
almost a dichotomy between the way that they have identified themselves on um, in response to their sexual identities, where he like his sexual life is a clandestine one, and hers is something that she found in the realm of books, in public literature, in like in in uh, student activities, and then like feeling proud about claiming it as her own. Even this 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 graphic novel itself is a claiming of her sexuality in a in an extremely public manner, and. That might have been as a result of if we followed that whole idea of her being the Athenian to his, uh, the smart the Spartan to his Athenian, a way of her trying to establish her departure from his experience of sexuality. Yeah, sorry, just yeah. go. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, going off of that point, like the perfect for me manifestation of that fact in the book was on it was on page ninety eight, and where she's talking about their own dress, and she goes, "Not only were we inverts, we were inversions of one another." Well, I was trying to compensate for something unmanly in him. He was attempting to express something feminine through me, and so in that scene, it's that they're getting ready for a wedding, and he's wearing a velvet suit, um, which is probably the most like feminine expression he gave give to that masculine outfit and then she's like wearing as she describes it the least girly dress that she could find in that store so i think it's like just so interesting and like you all said that kind of like her sexuality is like kind of like that like it's like it and so like i mean no one's saying that anyone learns their sexuality that's kind of ridiculous but like it's interesting how they just kind of mirrored each other but they never connected and i think that that definitely like and like it, it, it clearly even like in the way she says that right there like it informs her understanding of his sexuality she's like to my of course like to my spartan he was Athenian. Like, it's like they were on opposite. Ironically enough, even though they were both kind of lesbian and gay, gets thrown together all the time, of course. They were like complete opposites to the other one. Yeah, and sorry, just, yeah, every everything exactly right. I was just like going to go really quick off a point that was made before that, like, the re- I, I never noticed that before, that the reaction to when you know, she comes out, then her mother says, you know, your your father had affairs with men. And I never noticed that before. Her, the first thing her mother said in response to that is like, well, your father was molested. As yeah. if, like, this is, like, a causal explanation for, like, well, like, it, it, it sounds like the way that one responds to, like, you know, if someone had said, like, your, your, you know, your father's, like, insane, like, and this is why, and, like, it, yeah, no, and that's exactly right, that, like, in some ways, like, the fact that her father has, like, has to cope with this, and, like, like, the the reaction, like, where the, when Alison Bechtel comes out, like, as horrible as it is, is not one of, like, you're insane, it's one of, I can't believe it, Where which is not the one that her father has to cope with, which is one that's, like, you're sick, you know, like, you, you were abused a child, and this is the way you are, where you are, and that's not the one that Alison has to deal with, so, and, like, and it goes back to the thing about the Jesus frame, in which, in some ways, like, her father is, like, the one that has to shoulder this burden of, like, I am gay and I can't be who I am, but now you will be who you can be. You know, I wonder if that explains the reason why they can't connect in that scene in the car. Like, the the moment of rift is when he mentions how he used to want to dress up to be a girl, and then she excitedly responds with, oh my, like, oh my god, I I remember I used to want to be like dress up to be a boy too and it's like the valence of their like their emotions to the memory of wanting to dress like the other gender are just so different on like such a different level whereas his like his experience of wanting or of that dissonance between his gender and like what he wanted to express himself as must have been so much more restricted and and that that level of insanity like how does his society would have labeled him as whereas she was almost excited in the way like when she responds to him with this memory and like i could see like if if, if one were to put themselves in in the father's shoes like to tr- to try to relate to him in that moment like i could see why that would be 
a moment of departure for him. Yeah, because even though even though they were they had the same experience mm-hmm. and that those ideas, you know, both of them dressing up as the or wanting to dress as the opposite gender, even though that's the same, they had completely different experiences. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm not sure if you guys said this, but it, it obviously goes without saying that the father preventing her from sort of acting out her gender preferences and 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 coming into herself as a kid is obviously a um what i want to say is that his shame with himself is what prevented her from allowing to uh, express and exhibit her gender which is kind of yeah. obvious sorry one last one last point like on the jesus point because the jesus point oh no the jesus point is beautiful no it you're the one that brought it up it's a beautiful point like <laughs> actually mirai brought it up this did you okay i'm <laughs> yeah. sorry no that's what the 3.9 it's, point nine it's an extra stanford point. gets you yeah point. Jesus point. The Jesus point. The Jesus <laughs> point. Oh what will hereafter be referred to as the Jesus point. Um, <laughs> Love it. The Jesus point. Well, that like, oh, maybe this is too much. Maybe there's like, but like the whole thing ends up being like this Lazarus experience in which like Jesus resurrect or like in which like Jesus resurrected through the, oh, fuck it, dude. It, 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 it's too much. <laughs> no, no, say it. What would Allison think? No, so never mind. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to restrain from this tedious. one. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's exactly the opposite, actually. I think <laughs> she much. she actually does get it. I mean, I'm guessing what you're about to say, but she yeah. kind of gets to this. The Jesus like resurrection, not thing? on the Jesus point, but okay. when she's talking, like Jamie brought up earlier, I think uh, was the. I actually don't know if it was Jamie. I can't remember who it was, but it was about Icarus. If Icarus had not, it's me. It was. <laughs> it was in fact you. You're making the same point again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a good that's a good observation because she she talks about something similar to that at the end of the book. Wait, that's, that's wait, true. What's the observation? I'm not. Well, what the, the, uh, these dots if, if I will reiterate my point, um, in just Jake, do you want to reiterate my point? No. All right. The point was that this is Alison Bechtel's point actually, which I just like reiterated, which is that if Icarus had not had not or yeah, if Icarus had not flown too close to the sun, or in other words, like had. Daedalus not like had this faulty design in which like he had constructed the wings with wax and the wax had melted like what would have happened and like the implicit answer is I think pretty pretty obviously like he would have done something like what I just did which was fun home which was like it's like this remarkable work of art and well, Jake the sim- proceed yeah the similarity that I see is you know change the metaphor a little bit and just say that Icarus is resurrected that's no that's amazing I mean, you're talking about second chances, right? And yeah. hers is her father's second chance. No, that no, that's exa- no, oh, wow, like that's actually, no, that's exactly right. That like that her that like her like writing this book is entirely like due to and like resulting from like the sacrifice her father made, which is and like the whole thing is like the ultimate homage to like it's 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 a Bible in that sense. Like it's like it's like a dedication and like an homage to like what this person did. Absolutely, her. I can honestly say never on a comic church podcast before have i gone from having no clue what the person was saying to finding it to be one of the most uh, profound points in the podcast i was like what the f- to holy <laughs> yeah so like oh, that's good. yeah i thought that was really beautifully said and, and really well said he was about to be like all right we need to edit that out <laughs> <laughs> did everyone was everyone here familiar with all her literary references or was anyone like me and was like huh oh yeah I, well, I I thought that her analysis was fa- was phenomenal and incredibly impressive, but I was also impressed with just the fact that she had read all of those books. <laughs> I don't know Proust or, or Proust. Or- I only know his questionnaire, which we all fill out in the, the comic book version for the website. I knew some. I knew some of 
the stuff? Um, I didn't know any of it, and and um, I was just I was going to ask this question, but I guess I'm the only one who can answer it. Is do people who who you think aren't familiar with all the literary terms is it alienating? And I I didn't think it was at all. I thought she actually did a good job of explaining people who I didn't know, and um, she made everything make sense in it, and it, and it made me want to go out and read these things. And I love that you know we were taught in class that she saw this as you know uh, as a, a great work of um, literature and. Because she wants it to stand as actually that's not true. That we 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 learned in class that she wanted it to stand on its own as a great work of literature. And I love that she's referencing all these, you know, sort of mythic great works of literature that I've heard of but haven't read before. So oh, I enjoyed that. That was my answer to my own question, since I'm the only one here dumb enough who hasn't read Proust and Kaka and whoever the guy's name is. Well, look, the vast majority of people who <laughs> who are reading Fun Home, we're talking about a, a Time magazine book of the year. Those don't tend to be the absolute most intellectual books. This, I would guess, has more literary and uh, historical references than the average Time magazine book of the year. So you have to guess that the, the majority of the audience hasn't read Proust. Even many of the people who have read James Joyce probably didn't understand it. But the way that she applies each work that she refers to is really impressive. It makes it relatable and understandable. Totally. No, I could definitely see that. I also that that I also thought that James Joyce was the the football player who beat up his girlfriend really badly, and then he was and the author actually. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, one same guy. Oh, hey, cool. Yeah, OJ, um, right? I should probably JJ, as they call him colloquially. Who are you talking? I think about? you're talking about Rob Rice. <laughs> I think you're that's that, that really. Yeah, I think that's what I was. Maybe you're talking about um, OJ Simpson. Ray no, Rice. not OJ Simpson. I, I that's say Ray Rice. Yeah, James Ray Joyce. Ray, Ray Rice. Rice. Ray Rice. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's the alliteration. It's the alliteration. It's the alliteration that just gets me all the time. Oh no. Um, <laughs> that being said, uh, to people more in my position who came to this this graphic novel from comics versus coming to it from a literary perspective, that's all. That's what you. That's that's how it was for me. No, seriously. Um, actually, I have a question that kind of relates to that. Sure. Which was um, whether people thought that this was um, a, a great work of comics art, independent from being a great artistic creation. Justin, go ahead. I did find it to be a a, a great piece of art. And I think going back to what Julian said about how it was created, I mean, look at how much time and effort she put into creating these scenes. And I think there's something to be said about the artistic experience of creating it and being each of the characters. And, and, you know, it's, it's, I think if you just look at it quickly, you know, you can just assume that she's a sort of stand-in for all these people. But, you know, I think she's sitting there trying to imagine what her father, what her mother, what her brothers, what the people in her life were were thinking and feeling and in order to capture the correct body language, the correct moment. And yeah, so I think that that's, uh, uh, I think that's pretty uh, a profound experience for the artist and therefore a profound piece of art. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, just going off of what you just said, Justin, I think that there's a lot in there because I know as I know, because I work here, um, everyone at Comics Works <laughs> is required to read, of course, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. And um, he talks at length kind of about one of the great things about comics being the way that, because you have these panels, the things that happen in between the panels, like that space, like you get to form that in your mind and it makes it more powerful. So even like the scene we talked about closure earlier, yes. And the scene that we talked about earlier where um, like she doesn't actually show her kissing his hand, she just shows the before and then the walking out of the room. Like it's like, it's better because 
like that's a lot of just like a lot of great comic theory like just to it, it's better to not see it because then you form that moment in your brain and it feels it's kind of like how you read a I mean I guess it's bad to say it's a good comic by comparing it to a book but it's like when you read a book and you something's described so well that you get to form it in your brain it's the same great thing with comics where if the panels are right even if they're not like crazy wacky over the top inventive with 12 colors in it like it should form itself into an entire narrative in your mind that you're also seeing on the page and I think she does that beautifully like all the time I think that's why when I read it I feel like I really have a idea I have a good idea of something that happened in reality but is being depicted in the comic form and I, I think Mira you, you made a really excellent point before about their facial expressions and the emotions that they're uh, conveying through Alison Bechdel's art and I think it speaks to you know the high level of her artistry that she can render faces like that and get that emotion across to us and um, I think that only you know leads us to believe that it is a great work of art on its own aside from its writing that being said um, many people do consider and I think Cal can speak to this too that that a true author of a comic can only be a writer or an artist and a writer or someone who's a writer and an artist um, who can, you know, like Art Spiegelman who created Mouse or um, Marjan Strapke who did Persepolis. Um, do you want to speak to that a little bit, Kel, or not? I don't think I understand the question. Oh, I, I'm referring to, I thought you could speak about this more in that there's a school of thought within comics that the only true author of a comic can be a writer who makes art and, and an artist who writes, someone who can do both. And is sort of a, a standalone figure. Yes, or? like I was, and I was mentioning people like Art Spiegelman, like Marjan yeah. Satrapki, who did Persepolis, right, as opposed um, to the uh, like Marvel or DC model, right. I mean, personally, I let's try to pronounce that P a little bit less strongly. Personally, I agree <laughs> that there's merit in uh, in one person developing the whole work, and you can talk about the artist being able to really craft the entire story if they're able to control both the artwork and the uh, the text. And this comes up in, in similar works, uh, like the comic March, which is fantastic. Is I want to read that so badly. It's sort of more of a historical work, but it's also a memoir. And in that, John Lewis, who is an incredibly impressive figure, he tells the story and he worked with a, a writer on that. And the artist, Nate Powell, also excellent. There you see a, a great work that's been developed by a, a team of people as opposed to Fun Home, which is purely developed by Alison Bechtel. Here, I think we can attribute all of the decisions to this one person. And I think that in itself is powerful. That's not to say that comics that are developed by teams of people are inherently worse. Uh, yeah. As you, as you were speaking, I, I, I was wondering if a book put together by one person well, specifically a comic book put, or a graphic novel put together by one person is inherently more pure, I guess. Is the more artistic even? Well, it's more of the art, I think, just because it's so, or, or I guess of the medium, just because it's instead of it being the team, it's one person's pure vision, just undiluted through other people's interpretations interpretations sorry um, i'm trying to finish your sentences i was i was working i was looking, yeah. i was gonna say mind filters but yeah interpretations <laughs> uh, i think we should make a motion in the world of literature that instead of saying interpretation now everyone just has to say mind filter <laughs> i like that yeah so so i guess i guess to sort of answer your question is just that i i wonder if pieces like fun home or mouse or persepolis i wonder if they're inherently more pure just in the fact that they're coming directly from the author's hand 
obviously I don't have an answer for that. Well, we should also mention uh, My New York Diary by Julie Dossay as, as a great example of that. Also, Craig Thompson's Blankets, uh, we should include in that. So I'm not going to, I'm not brave enough to answer the question, but I just wanted to include those in that category. Yeah, I would say most non, look, you can divide the, you can divide comics into lots of different categories. I think a common one is between pop comics and art comics. And the category that we're talking about is mostly the latter. And that's the typical model. One person writing both both writing the story and drawing the images. Uh, Chris Ware, Dan Close. I mean, many of the best regarded graphic novels. And uh, I mean, Adrian Tomin is he writes Optic Nerve. That's a so there are a lot of serial comics as well. This is a common model outside of the mainstream comics industry. To me, it seems like if we're talking about artistic purity, if there is any issue with teams of creators developing comics, it's an effect of the commercial model of developing comics. The reason that publishers like DC and Marvel use teams is efficiency. They can produce more comics if you have lots of people working together. And that's also just the model that they've used forever. But many of the best works that we see from other publishers are developed independently. I don't think there's anything inherently more pure about that, but it does tend to be the case that individual people write and draw those comics. To me, it's just because they're independent of a certain commercial model. What about in uh, countries like France and Japan and manga specifically? I'm not a big manga reader, so I can't answer this, but do we find that most graphic novels and comics are created by a single person versus a team of people? Because, uh, you know, Europe is known for, I, I can't speak to manga, but I know that Europe is known for being more artistic in its comic book making process and that, you know, people don't have these insane monthly deadlines and weekly deadlines and things like that. So, yeah, Mira, you look like you had something to say about that. Um, so I, I, I can't verify this. A lot of mangas about manga making right. out there just as a genre and they depict like teams of people um, working at, at multiple different uh, I, I don't know what you call those those sketch sketching desks that are kind of like horizontal or vertical right. to you right. and you just have a bunch of them lined up and you have a head artist who like has an idea for like the vision and when it comes to like manga a lot of the the skills are technical like the backgrounds are cut out with an exacto knife and then pasted oh wow like, so it's not entirely inked. So there, it's a very time consuming process. And if you think about how thick manga volumes are in comparison to like comic book, like what would you call those? A single um, issue. Yeah, right, right, right. That to generate um, at a similar pace, those kinds of thick Basically, 100-page um, manga editions, they do need to work in teams. And mo almost all, I would say all manga is serial, uh, going up to maybe like 20 20 volumes or so. Well, cool. Yeah, my understanding of like the manga writing process is that the right the writers at least work under like insane deadlines. Mm -hmm. They work under insane deadlines. That's... Mm -hmm. Likely. <laughs> well, that that is it. that's a huge effect. And, and I mean, the more I think about it, this question of whether it's more artistically pure is inherently tied in into how it's how things actually happen in the real world. Maybe teams of uh, comic creators could produce comics that are, you know, pure to a greater extent than mainstream uh, superhero comics can be because of that commercial effect. But that's not really what happens. I don't think. No, no. I think this could be a topic for a whole podcast in itself, actually. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's um, lots of possibilities and lots of things to talk about. Jamie, I know we talked about you having the last question because you have such an excellent question that we talked about before we uh, wrote the script for this podcast. And before we get to that, I just wanted to ask everybody what the moments that resonated with you most in Fun Home were and just simply did you relate to it? Julian. The last frame or like the last page of the truck being above and her jumping in to her father's arms right below. That's exceptional. Jake, what about you? Yeah, I totally agree. That was that would be the page that I think of too. And you know, the book is about struggle in this relationship and it ends on this sort of soft note and I thought that was very it's just a striking page. Uh Jamie? Um I think it has to be definitely the two pages with them talking in the car. For me, both times I read it, I think it's always so understated, but I feel so much emotion being conveyed and it gets me. Uh, Mirai, how about you? Actually, uh, the scene that I'm thinking of is one that we didn't touch on in the podcast. Um, It's when she's talking about her uh, developing OCD and her way that she's trying to manage it. And the way that she does that is to create this form of syntax for herself when she is dialogue like narrating her life it's that weird um pointy kind of symbol that she superimposes onto all of her journal entries that to her means the phrase i think and it's it's that like i think i think i think that 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 sense of doubt that she has in this small fraction of her life that extends in both directions for her that just kind of concentrates here that really like the thought that it would materialize like that it it really struck me for me it was the uh the phone call and the moment she realized that her father died and it wasn't the one panel it was the the way that they were repeated and the times in the story that they came up for me it really you know brought me back to this sort of these shocking moments in life when you realize someone that you love has you know just suddenly died and um the way you kind of replay the moment where you get the news uh kale how about you I, I think for me, it's the uh, the moment just after that, actually, where she or maybe it's not just after that, but, you know, in theory, in, in like the actual timeline, when she sees her brother and they can't stop like laughing, laughing. Right. Um, and and she talks about um, his career in the in the in the funeral home business and how they used to make jokes with the with the the undertakers and the and the you know, all the other people who are associated with the the funeral process. Yeah, I think that's what struck me the most. I, I, I found that there have been occasions, especially later in my, in my life where I have sort of found the death of someone close to me, uh, not funny, obviously, but I, I, I found that I was having like an inappropriate attitude toward it. And that really, that really struck me as fam- familiar, I guess. I do know somebody who um, I attended a funeral with them. And uh, at at first, I was really angry with them when they started laughing during the funeral. It was one of my best friend's uh, parents who had died. And I brought them outside. And, you know, after sort of realizing what was behind them laughing was this sort of intense fear and this inability to cope with when a similar thing like that had happened in their life. And, you know, I thought it was interesting that you know, being in a a similar moment for someone else brought it up for them. So, you know, I think... It was difficult not to get upset, but it was hard not to have compassion when they explained where that kind of came from. Jamie, I know you have a, we've been saving your 
amazing question for last. So I know I'm like also I'm so intensive, like intensively into myself now that I'm thinking about these emotions that you guys have like distracted me. But kind of like the main big overarching question that I was hit with when I first read this and then when I read it again was that like obviously as a lot of us read this in class it's kind of like we're all aware that this book had like a super strong critical response and I think that it was due in a large part to how she gives so much detail to her life and I think that it's kind of a popular thing to say and something she even says in Are You My Mother where it's kind of like the more specific a story can be the more universal it is and I was just wondering like why do you think it's this specific story that we have latched on to as like the graphic memoir that's like the deepest and most like the best, I guess, of our time that's taught in the classrooms? Like, why is it this story about this girl and her coming to terms with like her own life and her own sexuality and her father? Why is it this specific version that we all revere and feel like we connect with the most? I think that on some level, it's just, even if it's not exact, you know, I'm not a five-year-old lesbian girl or whatever, but like there are moments there that I can see myself in. It's not just that I can't relate to the book as a whole, but there are specific moments where Alison Bechtel is just like me. And I, I think that's sort of, I, I sort of think that's the 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 thing that, gets comic book readers is like it's like the appeal of like spider-man it's like you see yourself in peter parker and that's why he's such an appealing character and i think if there's even one shining moment of that in a comic book i I wonder if that's what is what's so attractive about comic books and what makes a good comic book in general i think most children have a need to separate from the parents, which is obviously a natural thing that we all do. But I think that in Alison Bechdel's struggle to, you know, find her own identity, whether it's through dressing more butch, as she says, or um, experimenting with her sexuality later in college, I think what's really relatable to everyone and certainly relatable to me is, you know, the need to stand out and establish your own identity separate from your parents and having that squashed because of just the natural relationship between parent and child. I think it's unfortunately so rare that we and people who who have them are so lucky to have parents who just say, hey, you know, be yourself and I'm going to support you being yourself however you want rather than, you know, fitting into what I think you should be like. And, and, And I thought that was a particularly universal point to kind of piggyback on what Kale was saying. Yeah, I well, when I think about like Fun Home, I think about it, maybe this because my limited like experience with comic books, but I think about it like in relation to two novels, like graphic novels in particular, one of which like Persepolis and the other which is Mouse, like both are which are stories of like relatively young people coming to terms with their parents, which makes sense because like I feel like, and you guys could probably speak to this better than I could, but from what I gather, like comic books come like come into existence as like such like a young people genre like as a like listen is like only read by like teenagers and like children and as a way to like differentiate themselves from like you know authority figures and as a way to like create their own identity like it's apart from authority figures and you know it almost like makes sense that like that would be like the comics would be like the right medium for that because I can like I remember childhood in terms of like panels you know and I like I always think of like like when like when I think of like when I was when I was a kid I always think about like really like flashing images and like I don't think of it repetition right yeah like totally like in repetition and I remember like this one like like one horrible experience in like eight different ways and it seems like perfect that like it's almost like graphic novels like the most appropriate medium for like people coming to terms 
with their parents and their childhood. Yeah, I think uh, all great points. And um, I think this, I would say that this book and Persepolis and Mouse get taught for similar reasons. To me, it's not so much their merit specifically as comics, though Mouse was revolutionary in pushing the genre forward and pushing it into the the public eye. I would say that all of these works get taught because of their merit as artistic creations, aside from being comics. I don't think Alison Bechtel does very much that's pushing the envelope with the comics medium. And of course, she doesn't need to because this is an unbelievable creation. Her story is uh, fascinating, gripping, relatable, and the way that she tells it is also, I've said it earlier in the podcast, but really impressive, the way that she organizes her ideas and her memories and sets up information in a way that people can understand and also has great emotional impact. So I feel like with all these books, we're talking about works of art that are easy to consume and understand, regardless of whether they're comics or not. I think there are a lot of great comics out there, maybe even more impressive works of comic art, but they don't have the same relatability as something like Persepolis or Mouse or Fun Home. It's that kind of uh, idea that McLeod talks about in understanding comics identification through simplification uh, in a lot of ways. Maybe the fact that the art is so simple, especially in Persepolis and even in Fun Home, Kale brought up in the very beginning of the podcast the use of the blue color and the, the simplicity of the colors. Maybe that is what helps us all to you know further feel the journey of Allison's character. Mirai and Jamie, did you guys want to go? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, there's like, there's simplicity in, in their faces, too, and it really makes it easy to project one's own emotions onto the, like, unexpectedly, their blanker faces make me feel like there is more going on underneath this. But, like, it just strikes me how relatable I find this story to be, despite the fact of what a crazy roller coaster of a plot it is. Like... It is actually a story about a family who owns a funeral home with several different... It's a tragic comedy, is what it calls itself. And even Alison Bechdel herself compares her family story to that of the Adams family. It's, it's, it's a really bizarre story. And yet, and yet you can still connect yourself to it. Um, and I think that's what makes Fun Home such a book, a book that attracts so many people. The fact that it can take a situation like this and bring out questions, I think. Like, I was going to say humanity, but like, it's difficult to say, like, at what level that it does that because, like, the way that the father, like, treats his family members, a lot of it is is very objective and sometimes caricatured, but oftentimes also multi-layered. So it it really makes you think about, like, what you would do if you were in like how you would remember the story if you're in Alison Bechtel's shoes. It interacts with the reader very fluidly and like it penetrates into your mind, I think. Because because it's not it's not a dialogue driven comic. It's inner monologue driven. It's it's cont- contemplative. The pictures are so detailed that it l- gives you time to really soak it all in and be in the world of Alison Bechtel and be in this this bluish gray mood this tone I, I find myself falling into a very melancholy mood when I read fun home because it it, it leaves something on you it leaves an imprint on you much like the, these memories have obviously left an imprint on Allison 
I think that was extremely beautifully said. So yeah, thank you for saying that. And I, and I have to say, I mean, although I'm so excited to talk about Fun Home in a podcast, it's it's really exciting. There's a certain sadness to discussing it and a certain uncomfortability to to discussing it at length. And, and you know, no offense to the Storm podcast or New Means, but that doesn't exist for that, I don't think, in, in the same way it does for here, because there's something so real here that, that Mira I was talking about. Uh, Jamie, how about you? I was going to latch on to, especially with the universality of the story, something that Mira I was saying, which was kind of that, like, there is this whole thing thing about like her trying to like there's something like it's like you want to say it's universal you have to pick like on what human like what kind of humanity is universal and like for me it's always been kind of like the the disconnection like even like with the separate circles and vignettes for each family member it's kind of like and she goes into it in some ways in a different way when she talks about her mother in the second book just because she pulls in more uh psychoanalytic theory and she kind of starts to go off of like a lot of freud and lacan and there's kind of like an idea that is embedded in Freud or in Lacan, I mean, at the heart of it, it's kind of like we're all separate and we can never quite connect. And so that's why we keep living. That's why we can never quite reach it. And I feel like she is always describing these moments where like I wanted someone to hug me and they did, but like it was like one second, not enough. Like it was never like you never can fully connect to that person. And I feel like, especially, I mean, regardless of where you fall in this, like I'm very extroverted and I feel like I'm always trying to be around a lot of people, but I never quite reach that level of connection with another person. There's always like a, one more thing you want to share, one more moment you want to have. And I think that she does such a great job of demonstrating that, especially, and I think comics is probably the best format for that kind of visual, physical connection. So I feel like each time I've read it, read it now, I always feel that that's why I want to that's that's why I want to sit in my bed and ruminate on life because I feel like I think about that constant like we're all trying to like it's like almost like that famous um like fresco or whatever of like the like two fingers like god and zeus or like try and touch fingers I've totally mixed all of my mythology in together but But it's like we're always like that that close, but we're never quite. And I think that she really illustrates it beautifully. And that's why I think it's so relatable to so many people. I think we can all agree that this is it's great that this is considered such a an iconic work of graphic novels. And um, I know, Kale, this isn't really necessarily up your alley, but I'm sure you can see why people consider it to be such a great work. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I think we can all recommend it to people. Yeah, oh, this yeah. is this and Persepolis are the two books that I recommend to people most frequently. Me too. I've, I bought it for a couple of people on Christmas Fun Home. So I hope that they, uh, Gabby being one of them, who I hope uh, checks it out and reads it. Um, but that is going to do it for this episode of the Comics First podcast. And the last thing I want to do is sound super commercial after talking about such a deep thing. But I do have to remind everybody that we're on the web at comicsfirst.com and, you know, Facebook and all that stuff. So I don't know, just search for us on comics first in google yeah you can find us anywhere and we do talk about a lot of graphic novels like this jake is our graphic novels editor and he'll make sure that uh we have some deep conversations online like this all the time right jake yeah hopefully we can have more podcasts on books like this too i think uh the next one you can see like this is going to be aya of yip city if you guys want to check that out please do it's about a woman who grew up in the ivory coast in the 1970s and the the story of her friends and family and how they all interweave with her and i think that's going to be really fun if you have not yet read fun home i don't know why you're listening this far into the podcast but uh uh you should definitely go out and buy it now and uh if you have it you know i hope this inspires you to read it again uh jamie and jake have read are you my mother 
and also highly recommend the, the sequel to this, which is about uh, Alison Bechdel's relationship with her mother. Alison Bechdel is also working super hard on a book right now, and you can check out her work on her website, which you can read all about her comic strip. Uh, is it Dykes to Watch Out For? Yes. Yeah, uh, which is really exciting. So yeah, please listen to us some more and let us know what you think of the podcast, and we'll see you soon. Bye. 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 Oh, wait, we didn't do a, a, sound, a sign off like uh, Captain. I know. I, well, I couldn't think of anything that was appropriate. I was I like, I don't want to be too funny. I know. I don't want to be funny. <laughs> it should be like, it Maybe. should be like thoughtful. This is Kale Ward and I'm a big fat lesbian. <laughs> That's, that's, yeah, that just undid. Like, the, that was the super thoughtful. Okay. We're deleting like, the files. Like trending millennials. Super. There goes thoughtful. the podcast. <laughs> We're closing the site. All right, all right, wait, wait, wait. Let me just like channel Kathy. Okay. If you want to have some fun while you're at home, read fun home. I was gonna say, yeah, um, my, my watch the Real bad. Housewives of New York City. But yes, also read fun home. <laughs> Why don't you just go through the various letters of the alphabet as your various curse words right now? What do you mean? You were like, really? When I was a kid and I said, like, C isn't you, I was like, C isn't cunt, you know? <laughs> I don't know where this is coming from, Julian. I just thought it would be a really good sign. I feel like the only way to end this is to be like, you should open a bottle of alcohol and fun home and just be ready to sit down for three and a half hours and really think about what you've done with your life. Yeah. Don't forget your tissues. Yes, uh, absolutely. All right. Bye, everybody. 